Would you uh, open God's Word again one more time to, um, to the Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah chapter 6. And we'll um, hear that Scripture one more time as we prepare to open God's Word. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. You can find it on page 571 of the Red Pew Bible. Uh, or you can find it on your phone on the app as well. Um, we'll be reading from uh, the ESV. The ESV this time. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, that, that mysterious angelic being. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to the other and said, what we just sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. The very word of God. We're at different seasons of our lives. Some of us are the, some of us are the brand new part of our, our life. I'm looking at grandma holding the grandchild right there. Um, some of us are in the middle of it and we, we dabbled in what we believe are God's purpose for us and, and some, some have found that sweet spot and, and feel like, wow, this is what I was made for. And others have that, that, that holy discontent and, and are sensing, I'm, I'm not quite there. I'm not quite landed at that place that I know God is calling me. Others of us are saying, wow, I, I'm, I'm nearing the end of the season of my life. And, and is it possible that God still has meaning and purpose for me? Am I just, just going to park myself uh, in that parking lot of life, or am I going to put myself on the shelf and, and disengage? Or is it possible that everything, everything I've experienced up to this point has brought me to exactly this place for God's sovereign purposes? I've shared with you before, I'm not um, a particularly a puzzle person. I'm, a, uh, I'm going to use a strong word I probably shouldn't use, but I'm a, I'm a puzzle terrorist, Right? My sisters all love putting puzzles together, um, but but I love to take a piece when they were working on the puzzle and stick it in my pocket. I can tell some of you did that as well. I can tell by the guilty looks on your face, right? And what would happen? They would get to the end of the time, right at that crowning moment. They have one piece left, and wait, there's still 
there's still a hole in this picture, right? There's something missing. And that's when I would come in like the guy on the white horse and say, I'll save you and put the final piece in, right? I wonder if sometimes we don't live in that, um, in that place where there's a hole, there's a piece missing from the puzzle that has been our lives. And we have some, maybe, maybe most of the picture, but, but there's still something missing and we're not quite there. There, um, we, we know that, that there's a, an aspect of this picture that we can't see yet. Now, most of us, we, we get very comfortable with just kind of skating along with that hole in our lives. We have adapt to it. We compensate for it. We continue to press forward with our lives. Sometimes we get all the way to the end of our lives uh, having this hole in our hearts, having this hole in our understanding of ourselves and of, of God and His purpose for us. And then something happens. Then, then the rug gets pulled out from under our feet and we lose our job or a loved one passes away or, or we, we're overwhelmed by a vision uh, uh, one way or another of thousands of people in parade making their way toward the United States. A vision of, of a whole state on fire. Thank you so much, all of you who sent no kind of saying, I hope your parents are okay. And, and they're, they're about 10, 12 miles from the fires. And, but their hearts like yours are just breaking. 6,000 structures, right? 6,000 structures burn to the ground. And, and, and that fire is no respecter of persons. It takes the best of a, I think the Kardashians home burned, uh, and it takes the poorest of the poor as well, right? Something happens in our lives and, and our foundations are shaken. Our foundations are rattled and, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden we have clarity and we have an openness that we never had before. I want to suggest to you a couple of things before we come to this, this moment in Isaiah's life where that very thing happened. I want to lay a foundation uh, for you as well about who we are in Christ that that hopefully then will help you understand that missing piece that will help you frame the puzzle so that the final pieces could be put in place. Let me just start by saying you were made for God's glory. You're going to have to deal with that statement sometime in your life. Genesis chapter 1 says He created us in His very image for His purposes, right? You were made in His image and, and this is the, the thing that's going to rock some of you and, and, and He is glorious. He is glorious. When you, when you see people encounter the glory of God, what happens? They, they hit the ground not because they, they're uh, legalistically bowing before it because they can't stand any longer in the presence of that glory. Other, other scriptures describe that glory as, as inexpressible beauty. Um, this, this amazing vision of who God is. And, and you were made in that image, right? And if you're made in His image, if your purpose is, is to... Um, to glorify God, right? Then, then you also uh, 
you also are called into that purpose to give him glory with everything you do. We were talking in Sunday school class, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I have not memorized that puppy, um, but I memorized the first one and many of you have as too. If I were to say to you, what is the chief end of humankind? What would you say? To glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? Will you say that with me? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? So, so not only are you created in God's image for His glory, but the way that you bring Him glory is by glorifying Him. Which begs a question. A question that many of us have struggled with our whole lives. How do you glorify God? Well, the short answer, and forgive me for using... Christianese here, but the the short answer is through worship. Through worship. I love the English uh, uh, understanding of that. Worth-ship. Through giving worth, giving weight to something. Through worship, you glorify God. The the Hebrew picture of worship, you remember, is to, to bow at someone's feet and to kiss them. To kiss them, right? That's the Hebrew picture. The, the Greek picture of it, and, and we're merging two cultures in, in, the, in, the, in the scriptures. The Greek picture of it is the word liturgy. Is the word liturgy. The way that we order our life to serve Him, right? Every life has a liturgy. Uh, I'm discovering as I get older that I have more and more liturgy. That I have certain rituals that I do. And, uh, and, and if I miss one of those rituals, then my life feels out of sort that way, right? Uh, and, and every life has a liturgy. Every worship service, and even in non-liturgical churches, there's a liturgy. They do certain things certain ways. You glorify God by the way you worship, the way you order your life to serve Him. This is what you were created for. You were made to worship. Sounds like a Christian song, doesn't it? You were made to worship. We all, we all were made to worship. And, and, and you don't have to go far to begin to tap into this, right? I was watching football on TV, right? And my team scores a touchdown, right? What happens? What happens? I say my team. I don't root for my team because my team's terrible this year. So I've been rooting for Purdue, right? Not super choice, but, but better than UCLA. And when they score a touchdown, what happens? I worship. I stand up and I scream and yell. And I know all the hymns that all the little songs they sing and those things, all the little musical pieces, all the right response. It's liturgy, right? It's, it's worship, right? The problem is it's worshiping Purdue. Football. Some of you get that. Um, um, you were made for that. You were made to be enthralled by something. To, to, I think that's why people uh, idolize athletes, right? Because they do stuff that we just can't do ourselves. And so, so it's so easy to, 
to, to identify with them so that when they succeed, we succeed. We, we begin following them. We begin dressing like them. We begin speaking like them. We begin asking each other about that. We are worshipers. And, and in the absence of something worthy of worship, we will find something to worship, right? So what happens when we fail to worship God? We, we find an idol. We bow down to something else. And, and, and don't be confused. When I say idols, I'm not talking about little statues. You don't say, I don't have little statues in my house that I light candles around and bow down to. No, our, our idols are much more subtle than that. Aren't they? We bow down to the idol of power and influence. We want to be able to control our environments to make sure that we're not surprised by something. And unfortunately, the way that we do that is by controlling the people around us or attempting to control the people around us. There's a huge difference we'll explore another time between power and influence. But they both are idols that we bow before. We bow before the idols of pride and performance, right? I care about how I do and especially about how other people perceive that I do, right? And if you have any doubt about that, come down to UE and watch me play racquetball. I'm known as the guy that never has mercy, right? Um, I, I get that little competitive thing going and I can't stop myself. I can't stop myself. But, but there's something about me that likes the feeling of winning, there's something about me that likes the accolades when someone says, that was a great shot. There's something about me that likes those things. And if we can't do it ourselves, that's okay. We, we love to watch athletes and our favorite teams do the things that we can't do. I'm so tempted to pick on Curtis for wearing a Notre Dame shirt today. <laughs> you were thinking that the whole time. I haven't seen that shirt in a couple of years. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> I know. And no judgment or condemnation. I'm all in that myself. I am all about that myself. But I find myself subtly um, focusing on those things rather than focusing on the one who's worthy of my worship. If we don't influenced by possessions or by power and influence, by pride and performance, by we, we fall prey to pleasure and sensuality. The whole first chapter of Romans is, is dedicated to, to people who turn to pleasure as their idol. People who, who turn to, to sensuality as their idol. And it could have been written yesterday describing the culture that that we live in. And and Paul summarizes it in Romans chapter 1. He says, they exchange the image of the living God for for things created to look like animals, right? They they exchange. He says it twice in in Romans chapter 1. They exchange the glory of God for things that had no weight or glory to them. So many of us are slaves to pleasure, to comfort, to sensuality. Still others of us are idols to the fear of man. So many in Scripture were indicted. Um, We fear more about what people think of us, either negatively as in fear of them or positively as in a desire for their approval. We care more about what people think of us than we care about what God thinks of us. 
So you're going to worship. My, my attempt here is to lay this foundation that says you were created for worship and you're going to worship. The question is, who are you going to worship? Is it going to be yourself? Is it going to be God? Or is it going to be these idols that are so prevalent in the culture around us? But let me take it one step further, if I can. Because the thought occurred to me this weekend that, that, that what we worship determines what we do. I'm going to try and have a logical argument here for a second. What we worship determines what we do, right? If I worship a football team, then I'm going to be there for that football team. If I worship my work, then that work is going to come before anything else. What we worship determines our behavior. There's um, uh, uh, another middle step there that we'll talk about another time. But, but the, short, the short script is that what we worship determines what we do. And if you can flip that then, conversely, what you do reveals whom or what you worship, right? You can flip that and say, let me look at how I'm spending my resources, my time, my treasure, my talents. What does that say about what's important to me? What we worship determines what we do, and you can find out what you worship by looking at what you do. But let me take it even one more step, if I could. One step further. I mean, if I were to ask you, how many of you would say that your desire is to worship the living God? Can I get a witness? Is it your desire to worship the living God? Right? It is, right? We, we say that, right? But, but how you view God determines how you worship Him. I said that how you worship determines what you do. I'm taking it one more step and saying how you view God determines how you worship Him. Now, uh, let me stop for a second. And I was at a parenting um, conference on Friday and Saturday right across the street. Our, our brothers and sisters at Faith put on a wonderful parenting conference on shepherding your child's heart. And, and, and I was struck again by this sovereign act of God that he uses parents to, um, to represent God to children. You've heard me say this before, many of you. Some of you are hearing it for the first time. Um, God uses you as a parent to represent, I'm choosing that word that way, to present again to him the very nature and character of God. And then, and then the goal is, as you do that, then one day, as they move into their teen years, you're, you're able to, to step back, right? Step out of the way and let them see a fuller and fuller picture of who God is. But, but here's, here's the dark side of God's plan. If we had parents that didn't represent the image of God or represented it falsely. I mean, forgive me for the cliches, but if you had an abusive parent, right, then the natural, the natural inclination is to view God as an abusive God, right? If you had a Santa Claus parent, right, that's grandparents' job, by the way, Uh, but if you had a Santa Claus parent who never held you accountable, then, then naturally your image of God is going to be of a God who never holds you accountable, who you go to when, when you need something, 
But then uh, when you don't need anything, you're just fine. Thank you. Right. So struck again by how important our view of God is. And I was struck as a person who has one child left in my sphere of influence. And I know what you I know that I'll always influence them, but one teenager still that how important it is that I represent God to my children. And I would challenge you to your children and to your grandchildren. You represent God to them, right? And so, so how you view God is going to be really important. It's going to determine how you worship God. So a quick question for you is this. What is your vision of God? Let me say that again. What is your vision of God? It's colored by all those experiences, all the things, all the people that have influenced you. But I'm not asking you about those influences, about those other things. I'm asking you, what do you see when you look at God? That brings us to our passage for today. Because Isaiah um, is this astounding prophet in the Old Testament. If you're a person who has never gone much into the Old Testament, Oh, I just invite you, especially this Christmas season, um, explore. If you don't have time to go all 60 chapters or whatever, go at least the first 22 chapters. of Isaiah. You'll see so many things that are ingrained in our understanding. Isaiah is this amazing person who, who had a vision of God. And in Isaiah 6, we learn where he got that vision. We, we understand, even though he's already been telling us a little bit about God's word for us, and he challenges us in the first five challenges, uh, first five chapters of Isaiah. In chapter six, he tells us how it all began. He, we, he doesn't tell us how old he was, but he had to be really very young because he would minister for the next 40, we're not sure, 40 to 60 years in Judah. In Israel, he would minister. So, so he says, I was in, I was in the house of God, right? I was with other people. I was, I was, uh, in worship, maybe just going through the motions, like, like we're vulnerable to do. I can't tell you how many times in my quiet time I've caught myself in the middle of my worship time with God, just going, what am I doing? I'm just cruising through this thing. I'm not expecting to encounter God. I'm not listening for His voice. I'm not expecting my vision of God to change. And, and, and I'm guessing that that was happening for Isaiah, that he was in the temple, in worship, kind of going through the motions, and then God gave him a vision for who he was. Unbelievable vision. Hard to wrap our brains around because we're not used to six-winged uh, seraphim, you know. Uh, we're not used to this powerful experience. But if, if, if thanksgiving brought Isaiah to the gates of the temple and, and praise brought him very, uh, into the very holy place, outside the holy of holies, for whatever reason, God gave him a vision of what was in the holy of holies. He got a vision for the very throne room of God. And I was astounded as I was chasing this passage down throughout many references to it throughout Scripture. And John chapter 12, verse 41 tells us that he, he saw Jesus. John tells us that. I saw the Lord 
high and lifted up. The vision that he had was a vision of Jesus on the throne. I think, I'm pointing to you, Christian, because we've discussed that together. What, it must be phenomenal to try and get a picture of God. Um, John in Revelation just could not put it in words. But here he's putting it in words. He's seeing a person dressed in regal uh, attire and the robe fills the temple. And the temple's filled with the glory of God. And, and Isaiah is never the same. Let's walk it through together, right? Let's walk it through. I want to suggest to you that God wants you to see him. He wants you to fix your eyes on him. The problem is that for many of us, things block our vision of God. And, and one of them is, is our very security. We feel secure right now. Thank you, God. I don't need you right now. I do not want you to turn my world upside down. I feel secure in my job. I feel secure in my home. We feel secure in the environment, even our leaders at this point. I'm saying that particular, for a particular reason. Some of you are not secure. Some of you are very secure. But security can block our vision of God sometimes. We know God. We love Him. We trust Him. But we're not depending on Him, right? And then God comes. My, my grandparents used to have a, a, my grandmother in particular would say, they just kicked my slats out. Did any of you ever say that word? Kick the slats out of me, I think that she would say. Kick the Sometimes something happens and the slats are just kicked out. Our props are removed. It might be an illness. God, our, our, our prayers go out to you, Mike, uh, for um, Mike just discovered he has um, cancer of the bladder. And, 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 and that can kick your slats out. It's a testimony of his faithfulness that, that um, he's doing so well in the midst of that. But we find out that we're ill. We lose our job, Right? We lose our job and all of a sudden a slat of our security is kicked out from under us. Our leader dies. Um, Isaiah's first cousin had been there for 52 years, long before he'd been born. Everybody, virtually everybody in the culture could not remember a time when Uzziah had not been king and all of a sudden he's gone. Right at the time where that greatest of enemies that that um, is talked about in the book of Jonah, Assyria is knocking at the door and everybody's scrambling. Assyria is coming. This wicked, terrible force is coming to destroy us and, and all of our slats are kicked out. Chaos ensues. What are we going to do? How will we survive? Again, if you're not in that place, you're going, those questions aren't on my mind. Well, guess what? They will be one day, right? They will be. The throne is empty. The throne is empty. And I'm not just talking about Uzziah's throne. But life has taken you off the throne. It's taken all those idols that you trusted in off the throne. And you're wondering, uh, what is it that's worthy of my worship? For Isaiah all hell was breaking loose. And it's in that moment that God revealed to him his glory. 
Isaiah looked to God. He went to the worshiping community. He went to where other brothers and sisters were gathered to worship God in whatever way they understood Him, in whatever way they viewed Him. He went where the people of God were And in that place, in that time, Isaiah looked to God and got a vision of Him. In the worshiping community, God met Him. And what was the vision? The throne was not empty. God, Jesus, we find out later, was sitting on it. God didn't lose control. The fact that Assyria was knocking on the door... It didn't mean that God was no longer in charge. God is sovereign. And, and He's still sitting on the throne. And some of you might need to hear that today. In the midst of all the turmoil of your lives, and in, in the midst of getting your slats kicked out, God is still on the throne. Amen? He's still sovereign. And, and it's not about the circumstances with which, in which you find yourself. It's about the fact that God is still on the throne. Oh, I pray, God, that you give us a vision of you on the throne of our life. Even if that means, God, even if that means that i got to get off that throne. Even if that means that things that are very special to me have to get off that throne. Grant us such a vision, would you, God? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what was the effect of genuinely encountering the presence of God. What was the effect of going into the Holy? It should have scared half to death, right? Because anybody else that went into the Holy of Holies in that time had a rope tied around their leg, right? So that if they died in the presence of the glory of God, they could drag them out by the rope, right? The only people allowed to do that were the high priest once a year, and now God in a vision allows him to enter the very presence of God. Some of us are thinking, what's the big deal? I can do this all the time through Jesus. Don't ever, just like don't take veterans for granted, don't ever take that for granted. That because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you can enter the Holy of Holies because most of the people around you don't know that. They have not experienced that. They don't understand that. But the effect for Isaiah of entering the Holy of Holies, the effect of experiencing God's glory was that God also gave Isaiah a clear vision of himself, of himself. And it was not a pretty picture. It's like that meltdown that I had a couple of years ago in a very public place. It was not a pretty picture. The vision that God gave himself was that he was a man of unclean lips and he lived in a people of unclean lips and the chances on his own of overcoming that were like zero. Like zero. Woe is me. That's the strongest word that that Isaiah could muster. It's the opposite of blessing. I am cursed. I think he actually uses the word. I am undone. Some of your scriptures said, I am destroyed. I am destroyed. Not just because I've seen the king, but because I see myself as I really am. Right here, and you remember what what the seraphim did. They took a coal. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And he took a coal from the altar and touched his lips. We camped on this in the Sunday school hour, but but so many times we disqualify ourselves. We think that my sin is so great, God could never love me. God could never receive me. The seraphim took the coal, but Jesus took something much greater. 
once for all, Jesus went to the cross so that your sin could be atoned for. The blood of Jesus, and, and you know when I'm really getting to the nitty-gritty in my personal prayers, when, when I um, say to God, and I've been doing it on a regular basis lately, I plead the blood of Jesus. Because uh, nothing else, nothing else can can remove this brokenness and sin from my life. I plead the blood of Jesus. I know I pled it last week, God. I plead it again. I plead it again. I'm never going to stop coming to the sacrifice that Jesus made in giving His life for me on the cross. But for Isaiah, 700 years before the time of Christ, God had another way. He touched him and said, let's get over you. That You are not the problem. You are not the problem. I can deal with your sin. The problem is your vision of me, God is saying. He touched his lip and said that the, the sin was removed from him. And, and, and the, the vision, that, that it, uh, uh, this clear vision of himself now enabled Isaiah to experience God's grace. The effect of experiencing God's glory was a clear vision of himself. The effect of experiencing his own sinfulness was that God gave him a vision of what God can do with your brokenness. Gave him a vision of God's grace. And what was the effect of experiencing God's grace? I, 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 I don't know how to put it. I, I, I can do this from my own experience. And I confess to our Sunday school class this morning, as I've confessed to you before, that as I was growing up, um, there came a time when I clearly understood the gospel. I was 15 years old. I clearly understood the gospel and accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I, I accepted his work on my behalf. But shamefully, for many years after that, I portrayed the churches that I had been involved with as never having uh, proclaimed the gospel. Even when I came here, I remember saying it to you. I never heard about Jesus in the churches that I had been involved with before I was 15. And now I know that that wasn't true. It came to me in a vision when somebody told me that they had never heard the gospel from all of that. I'm going, oh my goodness. I know what was true is that I didn't have ears to hear the gospel, right? I didn't have ears to hear. It was probably being said in, in every creative possible way, but I couldn't get past the brokenness of my own heart until Jesus took that away. I couldn't see clearly. Weary saint, weary warrior, you've been carrying a burden that was never meant for you to carry for far too long. Let Christ carry that burden. Let him take that burden to the cross. And, and, and when he does, when you surrender it, all of a sudden you hear music you never heard before, right? All of a sudden, you don't say this to your boss at work, all of a sudden you're hearing voices, right? You're hearing the very voice of God say, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Who is missing that last piece of the puzzle and, and ready now? To see the whole picture of the glory of what their life can be when God is on the throne. My invitation for you is to get a new vision of God. 
Ask for it. If, if life, if your faith has become complacent, ask for it. Ask for an experience of God's grace that will enable you, like Isaiah, to understand God's purpose and then live, live in that sweet spot for every day that God would grant you. And if you're able to do that, I will be blessed. We will be blessed. The, the radiance of your face from being in the presence of God will invite us into his presence as well. And our lives will never be the same. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you. I feel foolish again talking to these saints about, um, about so simple a truth. But God, I know in my own life, it's often the simplest truths that are hardest for me to wrap my brain around. It's often the simplest of truths, God, that I ignore until you kick my slats out. Until you allow me to experience something that absolutely rattles my cage and causes me to cry out to you. Show me your glory. Would you, God, show me a vision of yourself that is so compelling that every other idol pales in comparison. Show us, God, a vision of yourself that will transform us. And then one day, God, we know we'll stand with you in glory. We will see ourselves what Isaiah saw 2,700 years ago. We will see Jesus sitting on the throne and the train of his robe filling the temple. God, we will see and add our voices to the myriad angels and saints who've gone before who cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Lord, we love you. God, And we ask this in the name, by the precious blood of your Son, Jesus. Amen? Stand with us as we close in worship.